Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 16th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... And what they found was about 6 out of 1,900 people had like 50% higher oxygen carrying capacity than was normal, which is enormous. So they looked basically like, you know, almost like college run, like trained college runners but had never trained before. That's David Epstein. He ran track at Columbia University while getting an undergraduate degree in astronomy and environmental science. He went on to get a master's in journalism and in environmental science from Columbia, after which he did ecology research above the Arctic Circle and wrote some big investigative pieces for Sports Illustrated. In 2013, he published the bestseller The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. And last week, ScientificAmerican.com ran his article on performance enhancement titled Magic Blood and Carbon Fiber Legs at the Brave New Olympics. That one's available free on our website. To get up to speed on the fastest and strongest people on the planet, I spoke with Epstein by phone earlier today. David, as you're watching the Olympics, what do you see that maybe uh, some of us who haven't paid as close attention to athletics and training and genetics would notice? What What do you see that's escaping the rest of us? Well, I guess one of the things I, I noticed, not just in track, but in the Olympics in general, is sort of, I guess, what I called in the sports gene, the big bang of body types, Yes, which is this idea that, um, you know, early in, early and mid 20th century, uh, there was this feeling that the average body type was the best for all athletic endeavors, sort of medium height, medium weight, and this well-rounded physique. And that's completely gone away as sports went global and became more scientific in in favor of bodies that are hyper specialized for their particular niches in the sporting world and so um you know athletes in sports where diminutive stature is an advantage have gotten smaller so the average elite female gymnast has shrunk from 5 foot 3 to 4 foot 9 on average over the last 30 years because it gives them um a lower moment of inertia so it's it's less resistance to rotating in the air basically so Simone Biles at 4 foot 8 is actually only barely below average now. Um, and conversely, in other sports where things like large size is prized, you know, we've seen athletes get bigger and, and down to all sorts of small details. Like I was, I was uh, talking a little bit about um, Helen Glover, a British rower who won gold with her partner the other day in the, the women's pairs rowing. And she was identified based on physical characteristics by Great British Sport eight years ago. And it, had never rode before and is now undefeated for the last five years, having first rode eight years ago. It's really amazing. You talk in the book about uh, basketball and, you know, to to even the the most disinterested party, it's obvious that height is a great advantage yeah. in playing basketball. But you also talk about something I'd never seen before, which is that even within these very tall people, their wingspan, the length of their arms, is unusual. Yeah, that was that was actually a bit of a surprise to me. I, I got interested in that because I was listening to, you know, just driving, listening to an ESPN radio uh, conversation in which the host was talking about, like, how talented LeBron James is or isn't. And he said, you know, sure, he's tall, but there are a million guys in America who are six foot eight and none, you know, and most of them aren't in the NBA. And it kind of just made me wonder, well, I wonder how many guys there are in the United States who are six foot eight. And it turns out there aren't close to a million. There's actually more like a quarter million. 
Um, and so it's actually quite rare. Like height is really tightly clustered uh, around the average. I think it's something like 60 some percent of men are just between 5'9 and 6'2", basically. And so, you know, I got interested in NBA players' bodies and found out that <laughs> being seven feet or taller is so rare that if you know an American man between the ages of 20 and 40, there's a 17% chance he's a current NBA player. If he's seven feet tall or more. Yeah. And, yeah, this, and this goes about, you know, I sent you this article I wrote, I think in 1998, where I jokingly said at the, at the top, you know, you know how close I came to playing in the NBA, 17 inches. Yeah. If, if I'd been 17 so inches close. taller, I would have been seven feet tall and uh, maybe I could have played the NBA. And then I said, you know, I'm just kidding because obviously there's a lot more that goes into being a professional athlete. You have to have incredible coordination and other things. But then I read in your book that really it's like one in six Americans between 20 and 40 who's seven feet tall is in the NBA. And it, it's a shocking statistic just how how determinative it is. Right. And currently in the NBA, not right. like former players, current NBA players. And, and as you mentioned, it's not just their height either. It's their arm span. So they're, a lot of them are measured before they come into the NBA. And so, you know, I always think of Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man or that picture everybody knows with the, the man with his arms extended and is equal to his height. And my arm span is about exactly equal to my height. That's actually a little bit small. So about 1.01 to 1 is normal. So usually people's arm span will be very slightly uh, longer than their height. But the average in the NBA is much higher. The average NBA player is about six, six and a half with seven foot long arm span, right? So the average NBA player would meet the diagnostic criteria for Marfan syndrome, which causes elongation of the limbs, the average. And it turns out it is predictive of, of certain stats. So it's not just height. It's also also length. And you talk in the book uh, about Michael Phelps. Now he's what six foot four. Yep. Uh, but he his inseam is only a little longer than mine, and I'm five seven. Yeah, that's right. So that was one of the funny things I I I think I put in uh, like an epilogue of the book. Said you know in Rio 2016, look for uh, the six four swimmer who's walking in next to his five foot nine countryman who runs the 1500 meters and you know, there'll be seven inches difference in height and wearing the same length pants. Right. And I, I actually said that because that, that's the truth for Michael Phelps, the greatest swimmer ever. And Hisham El Garouge, the man who holds the world record in the mile, who's five foot nine. Uh, Cause in running, you know, in swimming, you want a long torso and short legs. It's like, it's like the long hull of a canoe for speed going over the water. And in running, you want exactly the opposite, basically, you know, some really long pencils with some lungs on top of it. So if you're uh, looking for possible future Olympians, uh, you, can, you can quickly gauge body types, and that'll give you some idea of, of potential. Uh, but what's going on at the genetic level is also really fascinating. Yeah, and, and I should say, because there's so much emphasis on Michael Phelps' physiology, at the level that he's at, it's not that abnormal. Like we can't describe his success only to his body because actually most of the guys at that level are like that to one degree or another, um, you know, because that's what the filtering process has done. But Right. And, and they also train ridiculous amounts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and that – and sp speaking of the genetic level, I mean the one of the most interesting findings, I think maybe the most interesting finding broadly in – exercise genetics is that actually 
our genes heavily mediate our response to any given type of training. So you can have a group of people, and, and maybe we know this intuitively, right? Anyone who's ever had a training group, you can have a group of people who are doing the same training or, you know, whatever on the same diet, and you see people getting incredibly disparate results. And it turns out that that's often due to the involvement of how genetics cause our bodies to respond to different types of training. So we really have to, you know, sort of the the art of athletic development is finding that training regime that best fits your completely unique physiology. And that that's actually kind of unusual when we, when we think about talent, you know, normally we're used to putting everyone on a same training program. And if people, if it doesn't work for some people, you kind of blame them, not the training plan. Basically. Exactly. It made me feel sorry for all the people over the, you know, the last century who have trained their hearts out and only reached a certain plateau compared with other people who have this incredible, incredibly sensitive response to training and get better and better with the same amount of work. And, you know, the, it's just innate and people, people have taken it personally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a good time to sort of incorporate that into our thinking and say like, well, if this, if this diet that other people are on or this training program that other people are on isn't working the same for me, but I'm doing it right. Well, maybe it's not the right one for me. This, this guy, J.M. Tanner, um, a British guy who was the world's, he passed away not long ago, but he was the world's expert in body growth and development. And he was also a world-class hurdler. He gave this quote I love that everyone has a different genotype. Therefore, for optimal development, everyone should have a different environment. So I think he sort of encapsulated it, that if we really want to get everyone to their optimal development, we have to consider that the exact perfect environment for that isn't won't come from copying anybody else's. You know, it's not to say we can't take things from from people who are not us and and who are doing really well, but I think we need to keep in mind our individuality as well. Absolutely. And this is not in any way to take away from the accomplishments of these extraordinary no. people. Uh, but, no, no, we yeah. But but it has to be acknowledged that, you know, no matter how hard I trained, I was not going to be a world-class basketball player. <laughs> Well, one might argue that you didn't find the right training for you to respond to, but obviously, um, based on being 17 inches under the seven foot mark, you were facing an uphill battle to begin with. <laughs> right. My mother used to joke with me when I was uh, a teenager and had sort of plateaued at about five, seven, that I should really play more basketball because they're all so tall. So if I played more, maybe I'd grow. And she knew that she was uh, posing a Lamarckian thesis there, yeah. but it's, it's actually, it's not so crazy when it, you go into the book a little bit. You actually use that example in the book as something that's not true, but then you set up the fact that your bones and muscles will respond to certain things, which is obvious. I mean, remember Rod Laver's left arm. Yeah, it's obvious, but it's also kind of crazy. I mean, the, you know, tennis players will have actually slightly longer fore forearms on their racket side, even longer. And of course, a much wider elbow joints for more stress. I mean, bone responds to stress like muscle, not to the same degree as muscle, obviously, but it responds to stress. Um, I mean, I saw, I got a chance to see in my book reporting, 
bone density data for Cirque du Soleil performers. You know, oh, it must do, be must be amazing. It it like defies all of medical wisdom that says you know from thirty onward, basically, you only resist deterioration of bone density as as opposed to actually building more. I mean, there were Cirque du Soleil performers who were coming up on fifty who hadn't started coming down yet, and so uh, you know, I think beyond sports, there's a there's a pretty important public health message there too. And that must also help them if they take a fall, they don't break their bones. Absolutely. I mean, maybe the kind of falls they're taking, but, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, they will, um, you know, I actually, I, I think that really gets at something that has been bugging me a little as I've been watching these Olympics where, um, I keep hearing on TV, oh, Michael Phelps is defying age at 31. Like, that's just not true. I mean, the fact is most swimmers and athletes have retired at younger ages because, um, they're burned out maybe, or they can't make a living, right? right? Like they're, they're putting off the rest of their life. Many of them are taking training debt. And now in an era where some of them via endorsements, things like that can make a living, you'll see them persist until they're older. I mean, Anthony Irvin, who won the 50 meter freestyle last won the 50 meter freestyle in 2000 wow. and then took a decade off and is 35. There's a 40-year-old who was in the 100 meters who's run under 10 seconds. We, The ages at which we've seen athletes retiring um, is not indicative of the age at which physiology has to decline if they continue training. Right. Didn't we have a, a woman, I think a British cyclist, who was uh, a day shy of her 43rd birthday won something? Yeah. Oh, an American cyclist, Kristen Armstrong. Kristen Armstrong, um, right. Yeah. And so it's just the it, – it's it's a mistake to think that – what we've seen as kind of an average age in sports represents, you know, athletes stopping when they're when they're done, when they can't perform anymore. It's it's primarily been other reasons. Michael Phelps could, if he felt like it, he could totally come back in the next Olympics and and win some things again. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, a 60 year old Sandy Koufax could still strike some guys out too. <laughs> I bet you're right. So um, you talk in the book something else I found really fascinating that the fit six, and this is this idea that. There are people who do not do any kind of workouts, no yeah. exercise, but they're just innately incredibly fit. They have a, a great uh, oxygen carrying capacity, I think it was. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. The, their ability to move oxygen through their bloodstream, which is a really important indicator of endurance, um, particularly below the elite levels. At the elite level, everybody's everybody's really high, but it's also an important indicator of when you're going to die, actually. Um, and... This was discovered by researchers at York University um, in Toronto who were basically doing just these physical examinations for people who wanted to be firefighters. And one of those was an aerobic capacity test where you basically you cycle or you run um, really hard until you, you can no longer increase the amount of oxygen that you're moving to your muscles. Um, and what they found was about six out of 1900 people had like 50% higher oxygen carrying capacity than was normal, which is enormous. They looked basically like, you know, almost like college run, like trained college runners, but had never trained before. And it turned out that they just tended to have a larger, um, blood plasma volume. So not even the red blood cells that convey oxygen, but just the plasma in the blood and it causes more efficient filling of the heart. And so the heart actually pumps blood more efficiently through the body. And, uh, so they, they called them the naturally fit six. So these were people who had no idea, 
um, that they they had that ability. And if you think about it, six in 1900 isn't that many, but it's uh, certainly enough to count for every pro endurance athlete, right? So maybe what you want is someone who responds to training really well and, and starts with an advantage to begin with. So how widespread is this kind of testing for specific traits in uh, in the U.S. and around the world for, you know, kids to get them started in competitive uh, training programs to try to build future Olympians? Yeah, most of the places that do it in kids actually is probably a little a little ill-advised, partly because a lot of these traits don't actually show up until after puberty. Um, so one of the one of the problems we're actually having is, you notice junior national teams will be stacked with people who are born early in the selection year because right. they're effectively, you know, a year older, which is a big deal when you're 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or 14. Um, and then that comes out, you know, that, that goes away when everyone goes through puberty. So there's some early selection. I mean, like Chinese diving will look for, um, I saw, I'm not sure if they're doing it for this Olympics, but I saw for a previous Olympics where they had kids holding their arms above their head. And Chinese diving is like the most dominant team in the history of anything. Mm -hmm. And they were holding their arms over their head. And if the kids' elbow joints didn't weren't above their top of their head and couldn't like fold in, basically, they would feel that they'd make too big a splash on the water because they couldn't fold their arms in. So they would say like, okay, you out, 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 go to gymnastics, right. basically. And, and, and I, sh I should add, after I saw that, I was like, oh, God, they're going to lock them in padded cells or something. And, and that was not the case at all. They had... I mean, after that selection process, they like learned juggling. They had tons of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they they found a physiological trait that they think matters and started screening for it. In, in the U.S., we don't have as much of that. We Partly because we don't have to be efficient in sports selection because we have a huge population. So we have right. the same number of spots in sports, you know, or in the Olympics, but with a huge population. So we tend to just do sort of more of the natural filter. And our college system is a huge advantage for keeping people in the pipeline that most countries don't have. So that's actually most of what happens here. But if I, if I was the dictator of a small country of, let's say 2 million people, yeah. uh, I would, I would launch into these kinds of testing programs to identify who I could turn into a world-class athlete probably. Oh yeah. I mean, and that's, that's worked. You know, Australia and Great Britain have, have shown some great examples of that. Like again, to go back to Helen Glover, this rower who is with her partner, uh, you know, just rewriting pairs rowing for women was identified in this talents. It was Great Britain, when they were awarded the 2012 Olympics, they had these various talent searches. Mm -hmm. And the one that Helen Glover was um, uh, selected in was called Sporting Giants, where um, women who were at least five foot 11 had some athletic background, but not rowing. I think Helen had played tennis, um, done field hockey, and maybe run cross country, definitely field hockey and tennis. And they got her in and they saw she's tall. She has long levers, you know, long arms and legs, but short brachial, low brachial index, which means low ratio of her forearm to her total arm. Hmm. So that's good for pulling things, but, but conversely bad for throwing things. Um, and then they just gave her a quick test and said, you know, and she's got that aerobic capacity. Yeah. And she was world-class like almost immediately. That's amazing. And now she's undefeated for five years, and we have no idea when this is going to They just won the gold medal in, in Rio. Just incredible. So uh, this kind of brings us to uh, – we, we, we have never met, but we, we both uh, share this affection for this Finnish cross-country skier. Yeah. And you write about him at length in the book. You, you actually went to meet him. Yeah. Uh, Eero. Tell, talk about Eero and the issues he brings up. Yeah. So this was – basically, I was reading – 
these scientific studies about a man with incredibly high levels of hemoglobin, which carries oxygen in the blood, really important for endurance. And of course, it was anonymous in the journals, but it's like, you know, a three-time gold medalist from Northern Finland in this these years, so you could tell who he was. <laughs> really? And, yeah. And this guy, Eero Manturanta, who was a three-time gold medalist in cross-country skiing, seven-time Olympic medalist, uh, won the 15-kilometer race in a margin never before or since equaled. And during his competitive career, it was found that he had you know, almost 50% more red blood cells um, than a normal competitor. And so it assumed that he was, he was blood doping in some undetected way. And about 20 years after he retired uh, and he became an, a reindeer farmer in the Arctic, which is, which is where I met him, um, it was a group of Finnish scientists found that a gene mutation ran in his family that caused his body to overreact, basically, to the presence of um, the hormone EPO, which is like the one that Lance Armstrong famously was injecting, but we have that naturally. It, it cues your body to produce red blood cells. And for some people in the Monteranto family, it would their bodies would go into overdrive and just keep making red blood cells. They were basically missing the, the stop sign for red blood cell production. And so they had enormous oxygen carrying capacity. So like one of his nephews who had the gene mutation was a, also an Olympic gold medalist. A niece was a world junior champion. You know, and people in the family who didn't have the mutation um, were not competitive ski racers. So it's kind of a fascinating, very unusual to have a single gene that makes a large effect. So that's why it was kind of a fascinating case study to be able to pin it to one gene. And these people basically, I mean, you could look at it this way. They, they go into the race with three lungs. Yeah, it's something like that, you know, it's, and it's, it brings up this, these really interesting philosophical questions, right? Because people have have asked me, well, if that's allowed, then why, why do we frown upon people just injecting EPO to get to that level anyway? And I have my own answers to that, but I do think it's a really interesting discussion point. I think it's a fascinating discussion point and I, I cannot come to any conclusions i don't i haven't yet figured out how i think about it but so what what do you think about it you you say you have you have some thoughts about it yeah i I have thoughts but i also can can understand you know when somebody makes a reasoned argument to me that that isn't in line with my thinking i totally understand it Mm -hmm. so to show how strong my thoughts are on this but i mean i guess i i feel like the sports is about standardizing the rules Right, as opposed to standardizing the genes. Otherwise, we'd have identical twins competing against each other. And the fact is, elite athletes always have some types of genetic advantages. The difference in this case is that it was so obvious and so easy to to determine exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other athletes who have really high hemoglobin red blood cell count and can prove that it's natural. They've had it over time and it's been consistent. It just can't be pinned to a single gene. And nobody says anything about those ones. So um, I think it's part of, you know, life isn't fair. Genetics aren't fair. All elite athletes have certain advantages. And uh, and that's what it is. And I, I hope we enjoy it as an interesting look at, at human biological diversity. Absolutely. But I've, I'm always wondering why certain things are okay and certain things aren't. I mean, you talk in the book about baseball players' vision. Yeah. And that's really amazing. I mean, the average Major League Baseball player has unbelievably clear vision. And, and that's right. And that's in a similar 
It's interesting you mentioned that right after Aeroman Toronto because so the average major league baseball hitter they have to learn these perceptual cues that give away what's coming before long before it gets to them. Right. And the earlier they can do that, we many people can learn those cues, but once you've learned them, it's advantageous to be able to pick them up more quickly like the flicker of the pitch which is the flashing pattern the seams make when the ball spins. And so whereas I have 20/20 vision meaning I see from 20 feet away what the average person sees from 20 feet away. Um, Major League Baseball hitters have 2012 vision on average, so they can't be tested with like commercially available tests because they see from 20 feet away what I have to stand at 12 feet to see. Right. So, well, a, f- a favorite story about that was uh, Ted Williams. You know, maybe the greatest hitter ever um, was a really good duck hunter, and he would say that he saw ducks on the horizon before his hunting partners because like he willed it to be so. <laughs> and then when he had his World War II pilots test, he had 2010 vision. Right? Right. So I'm sure that. That also helped, but we don't think of it in the same way as Aramontaranta just because it's like, well, it's less, it's less known, I guess, but also it's, it's common. It's like the ante for the game. And so we don't even think about it. Exactly. And it's not as important for a pitcher to have that kind of clear vision. It really comes in when you're hitting the ball. And, uh, you know, there was this recent documentary, Fastball. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's a, it's about, the, the greatest fastball pitchers and the physics of throwing the fastball. And what's not in the documentary, uh, I went to a screening and then spoke to the director afterwards, and he told me that Rod Carew had told him, Rod Carew, one of the greatest hitters of all time, that if he could see the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand, he didn't care if it was coming in at a 1,000 miles an hour, he was going to be able to hit it. That's... And, and that dovetails with this vision thing. That's that. That's exactly right because it's. It turns out that, you know, these hit, the ball's going fast enough already that they're not really reacting to it. They're picking up on cues before the ball's released and the instant it's released, and that's when their decision is made. Basically, so you know that's why I thought it was kind of fun to open the book with this scene where uh, a softball pitcher who's whose balls travel much slower, albeit from a closer mound, but the transit time of the ball is still longer, um, confounds the very best Major League Baseball hitters. It's, it's not the speed. It's, it's, it's their ability to pick up on the cues. Right. The famous Jenny Finch and uh, Alex Rodriguez refused to even hit against her because he didn't want to look like a fool, he said. Yeah, yeah, and, that's right. He saw what the other guys did, and he just he, he, he made her throw a couple pitches to one of their practice catchers, and the guy like missed two of them you know, because he was used to different cues himself, overhand pitching. Right. And Alex just went... Nope. Yeah, no, nobody's going to make a fool out of me. Right. I refuse to do it. And Albert Pujols did not hit against her successfully. Oh, he, yeah. He tried. Well, yeah, he didn't have as much of a choice to, to get out of it as right. Alex Rodriguez because when she pitched to Pujols, it was in this charity all-star softball game, and, and he was up to bat, so he couldn't get out of it, right. so he got struck out. Now, she's 45 feet away throwing about 68 miles an hour, which is the equivalent of a 95-mile-an-hour fastball from... 60 feet, six inches. But again, it's the, it's that, uh, ability to via many hours of experience watching pitches come in to see the ball come out of the pitcher's hand that really affected these major league players ability to hit her. Not to mention it's a completely different delivery coming out underhand. That's right. Totally different movements of the torso, different rotation of the shoulder. And we know those are things that um, hitters have to pick up on. And if you, if you cover those things in, in various ways called occlusion studies, you can turn great hitters back into complete novices. Um, and of course, you know, Jenny Finch was an absolutely outstanding, uh, softball pitcher and a gold medalist, but 
but the women she played against in softball would hit her sometimes, and the Major League Baseball players never did. Right, because they had the experience of facing her and had right. had learned those cues. Um, but it brings up uh, something, you know, getting back to the the genetic advantages versus uh, natural ability versus doping. You know, I always wonder why Tommy John surgery is okay. That's a good question. And, you know, especially now that people, some young people are starting to have it sort of prophylactically. Um, which is a mistake. Which is a mistake, definitely. Especially because if you need a second one, the rates of return to your previous performance are very low. From a first one, it's it's very high. I'm not totally convinced it actually makes people better. Um, I think it's hard to say, but I think... I think we're starting to see, actually, I've just seen some of the first academic papers published on so-called surgical doping. Um, and so I think that's a conversation that needs to happen like right now, uh, especially because, you know, I think this, this signal of young people wanting Tommy John early uh, tells us is kind of a canary and tells us what we're in for. So we should be discussing that in earnest. And, and on the very most basic level, why are glasses or contact lenses or LASIK surgery okay? It's so, you know, it's such a, like, sports are the ultimate human contrivances. You know, really, like, right? It's, it's take agreed upon rules and add meaning. And so it's, it's really hard. To, to some degree, it just comes down to, like, this emotional feeling of, of how do people react to it. And most people are like, well, they're familiar with classes and context. So, you know, that's cool. And, and you use it for everyday life and those sorts of things. But what about as, you know, over the last decade, the proportion of testosterone prescriptions for guys in their 40s has quadrupled. And so that's becoming a lot more common too, even if it's less talked about. So what about when we have athletes who are in their 40s, but they're barred from that? It's it's a tricky discussion. And, and I think a lot of it is just has to do with our emotional reaction. I mean, there are things like there are hormones like DHEA that are banned in Olympic sports and the NFL allows them and things like that. So it's you really can't draw any bright line that I can tell. And you talk in the book about a mutation, a genetic mutation, that allows you to, was it take testosterone supplements and oh, yeah. not get caught? Yeah, that's a tricky one. So the the yeah, to make drug testing even more difficult, um, the most common drug screen is called the TE ratio test. So it tests for the ratio of testosterone to another hormone called epitestosterone. And most of us have about a one-to-one -one ratio, but it varies. And, and you can go up to four to one before your it triggers further testing to see whether you were taking synthetic testosterone. The trouble is some people with a certain gene that affects excretion of hormones in their urine their TE ratio either stays the same or goes down when they take testosterone. So the screen is just not going to catch those people. And it turns out that that's actually, you know, it's like in this, I think in the, the first study that found this 10% of Swedes in the study had that gene and like 60%, more than 60% of East Asians had that. So unless we're planning on genetically personalizing drug testing, that's not happy for the anti-doping world. I find this stuff endlessly fascinating and and again I don't I don't know the answers to these questions. Uh I just think it's worth bringing it up so that people who are really sure that uh certain things are absolutely okay and certain things are absolutely forbidden um will just yeah. think about it a little more. I think it's worth thinking about because 
it's it's just a fascinating kind of ethical question and and i don't know the right answer i i always ask why was it okay for them to staple uh kurt schilling's tendon to his ankle bone totally totally i mean and and especially when you think of things like um okay some of the anti-doping rules are justified as for athlete health right so when does stapling the tendon uh, to the ankle bone come into the play for athlete health or giving NFL players painkillers so they can go out. Like if I skateboard into a wall and ask a doctor for painkillers so I can do it again, they'll say, no, don't skateboard into the wall. But if I was in, or if you're going to do it, do it at your own risk. But if I'm in an NFL locker room, suddenly it's like, okay, you know, I understand why the athlete wants it, but I, I don't understand why it's given. I mean, these issues, I think you hit the nail on the head in that there's some of these issues that are really hard to have an opportunity to discuss in any context other than sports. And it brings up really issues of what do we want from sports and activities as a society and what do we tolerate and and why. And I always come back to this because when I was reporting on drugs and sports, you know, I would ask myself these questions a lot. And I always come back to that Canadian philosopher Bernard Suits uh, phrase that, that he used to summarize the core of sports and games, which is the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles, right. which I love. And I think the question ultimately is, is which of those voluntarily accepted obstacles do we feel are core to whatever values um, that come out of the endeavor? And that, and that really gets at what we care about. Well put. I'll, uh, I'll keep that quote in mind as I watch the 110-meter uh, high hurdles. <laughs> there you go. Very, very literal voluntarily accepted hurdles. This was great. I really appreciate talking to you. I, I greatly enjoyed the book and your article, and I look forward to more of your stuff. It's my pleasure. Thanks for talking with me. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can follow our coverage of the science of the Olympics. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 